dear friends, this is Christoph, and it's uh, my great pleasure to welcome you all uh, to the podcast Learning from Leaders organized by the TLEX Institute and the World Forum for Ethics in Business. In this podcast, uh, we want to connect in an, in an authentic, in a true way uh, with leaders and, and learn from their wins, from their losses, from their experiences. And today, uh, I believe we really have a great person, human being, a speaker and leader with us, Alex Koch. Alex, good to have you, have you here. Thank you very much, Christoph. And Alex, I want to introduce uh, you in a couple of words. And we also brought a couple of uh, uh, pictures here. Um, uh, uh, exactly. Um, well, uh, let, let me try to do justice here, all right? Uh, I believe from early childhood, you really loved sports. In fact, you know, every time we talk with each other uh, on the phone, then you will tell me I just was out there doing some sports or I'm just about to go to the mountains. You have been, and that's remarkable, an Olympic athlete. Uh, you have wrote, I believe, at the Olympic Games 1992 in Switzerland. In Barcelona. In, for Switzerland. In, for Switzerland in, in Barcelona, right? Yeah. Um, that's when uh, Mark Rosse won an Olympic gold for Swiss tennis. And from on from 2000 onwards, actually, you started to work for football. Um, you have been responsible for the FIFA uh, marketing program, the World Cup 2006 in, in Germany. Uh, and then you have had uh, a key in the communication department of the FIFA as a deputy head of corporate communications. And then after almost 17 years at FIFA, you retired and uh, from, from FIFA and you're now today a school teacher, uh, which I think is great, really working for, 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 for human values and a keynote speaker, of course, and lecturer on sports, sustainability and ethics. So uh, Alex, um, what is it that actually that you love so much about sports? Uh First of all, the physical fitness and the feeling after having done sports. There are some sports that I like while I'm doing them, and there are other sports that I like more when I'm done with them, the feeling afterwards. That's the number one thing. And the sport that I practice at the moment is running in the mountains or hiking. And there I have this nature aspect as well, which I like a lot. And um, the sport I did the most was rowing. And yes, we also had the nature, not so much where I grew up uh, in Bremen. It was always the same, but I love this interaction with the elements like water or the mount or the, the air. So yes, that's the number one reason. Yeah, really feeling the air, the nature. Um, and so I, I was really wondering, preparing for this podcast, and I realized I've never asked you that question. What made you move uh, into soccer and engaging, uh, fully immersing almost into this world? Uh, that was a coincidence, but um, I never really changed with uh, the practicing uh, sport. I've never played football really in, in a club I mean, as a child a little bit, but the sport I practice is rowing. But with rowing, you don't earn money. I never earned any money with rowing. And so at one point in time, you're reaching an age where you have to stop your active career and you need to start earning money. And I started in a, in a company called ISL Sports Marketing. And there, by coincidence, I ended up in an athletics department. So for the first four years, I worked in athletics, never done athletics before. And 
Then in 2001, this company went bankrupt. And by coincidence, at that time, I was helping out in the football division. And everybody working in football at that time was taken over by FIFA. And that's how I ended up in football. Yeah, and, and I think that is what then brought us together. As you as you know, I loved uh, soccer from early childhood. Actually, Alex, I, you know, when I was seven years old, uh, my dad took me to the soccer stadium and the FC Basel played by half time against Luzern. They were two, we were two, two one behind. And in the second half, they scored seven times. So Basel won eight two. And the next morning, I said, I'm not going to school if I cannot play for the FC Basel. And that was the beginning of <laughs> my passion for sports. And uh, I was a passion for, for, for the topic of ethics in business. And uh, since 2006, the World Forum for Ethics in Business holds conferences in the European annually um, on ethics in, in business. And as business has turned into sports, we felt it would be good to also talk about sports. And, and that then uh, brought us together. I will never forget the first time we met at the FIFA hit headquarters in winter 2013. Um, and we kind of uh, timidly asked whether FIFA would be interested to hold a conference. It's um, the obvious place to talk about ethics. <laughs> and, you know, when we were holding the conferences in the European Parliament on ethics in business, the, the, the argument was, what are you doing? You're preaching to the converted. Now we went to the FIFA headquarters and everybody said, what are you doing there? Is that the right place? Um, but what we thought, it is really important to exactly go to the places where it is in, where you see that sports obviously has become a business. And that's a to to meet the topic today, when sports meets business. So... What made you then work for FIFA? Um, in your mind, Alex, did you did you join an NGO? Did you join your passion for sports? Or did you join a huge uh, a business venture? What was in your mind when you, when you signed there? I mean, as I said, I didn't really sign. I was taken because I helped out in the football division. But I can tell you, when I started working in athletics, I was very skeptical because... I didn't have any relationship to athletics. And then was the time I really loved the sport. You can come very close to the top athletes. I was the driver of Carl Lewis. I met with Leroy Burrell. Uh, I was actually training with him, honestly. So that's what I liked so much on athletics. And I looked a little bit down to football because mm -hmm. these stars for me were too far away from the normal public. Then when I joined the football department, all of a sudden, I realized this unbelievable power that the sport has and the passion that the people have for it. And honestly, I was always a little bit soccer interested. I also have my favorite club and I'm sad if they lose. But now working um, for soccer was just uh, such another dimension. With everything you do, there is the media attention. Uh, if you create a mascot, it's mentioned in all newspapers. If you do the same in athletics, or, or even worse, in rowing, nobody will ever notice that. And that's what made me then really passionate about the sport, because with football, you can really move something in the world. Yeah, you absolutely can. Gamma. It's big business, and it's at the same time, uh, I wouldn't call it NGO in that sense, but it's, it's something that touches the world, uh, everybody around the world. And this power is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, totally. And, and that was also one of the reasons, I mean, apart from being totally uh, sold for sports, uh, one reason of, of, of doing the conferences on ethics in sports annually since 2013 for the WPP was and is that like a, a discussion in the European Parliament will interest a couple of people. 
right? Mm -hmm. But if there is a corruption case or ethical issues or controversies on the soccer field, well, we discuss it at the dinner table, right? And, and that's actually great, right? Because we reflect about important questions of life. Now, I thought uh, with the audience, it would be super interesting to, to learn from you um, about an incident back in 2014-15. I think, um, it, you know, uh, I always believe that true leadership starts when, when the knowledge ends, right? Everything else is execution. But when we are in a place we have never been, how do we, how do we act? And I think you probably were in such a place back in 2015, and maybe we can see the pictures uh, here, um, uh, one picture is, is at the press conference, right? With with with, oh, with yes. Blatter, and I think the comedian Simon uh, Brodkin threw up a couple of dollar um, uh, bills, which, by the way, he uh, or a little bit of cash, which, by the way, he got back from the Swiss police. He was surprised; he thought everybody was corrupt in Switzerland. Um, but then that picture went around the world, uh, a symbolic picture, right? Uh, asking the question: Is it all about money? And later on, the whole discussions uh, on, on, on corruption and, and the FIFA World Cups, etc., brought you to the spotlight, right? You were in so many TV shows. We see you here with Günther Jauch, uh, um, one of the main shows in Germany, defending then FIFA and Platter, explaining to the world what's going on. Um, so what comes to your mind when you, when you, when you see these, these pictures? How was it for you to be really in the spotlight? Uh, to be honest, it was great. <laughs> I liked it. I was excited like a little child uh, ahead of these TV shows. Um, and it's actually much more uh, special when I tell you how it came together. I was again practicing, doing sports. I was on my racing bike and I received a call from the former uh, director of communications around 12.30 on Sunday. And he asked me whether I could appear in a TV show on that same evening without any preparations, anything. And I just knew it's about Qatar. Um, so, so I had to go back, take a shower, got my clothes and headed off to the airport to go to Berlin. And the next day was then a, a half hour affair. And uh, a few days later, uh, I think Stern TV. Uh, I was excited like a child because I felt total, totally secure on this topic. And I knew that there was a big discrepancy between what the people outside of FIFA thought about the organization and what, <clears throat> what I knew. And that's why I felt so confident going into the show. Also, I thought that I would probably be better informed than the other people sitting there uh, who all have an agenda, political agenda or whatever. And so I, I really liked going there. I felt totally comfortable. And you felt comfortable because you were informed. Um, maybe you can take us also a little bit uh, yeah. back of what happened, what was FIFA accused for. And I mean, in your innermost heart, like, did you feel uh, uh, what the FIFA was doing was right? Or did you feel that there was a, a long way to go to become a real place of good governance? Uh, that I would uh, subscribe. That's a long way to go. Um, yeah. But what I always had in mind and actually i need to tell you maybe why i felt so confident because yeah. i was giving corporate presentations within the organization fifa almost on a daily basis to little visitor groups 20 30 40 people and so i was used to the questions from the public i was used to the questions why the hell did you go 
did you decide to go to Qatar with the World Cup? And what about Mr. Blatter being re-elected for the fourth time? And so on. And I knew all these questions and I knew how to deal with them. And in, in, I don't want to give a long explanation, but what I always did was a comparison. And that comparison, in my opinion, uh, describes perfectly the situation of FIFA. I always compare it with the United Nations. Now imagine you are working in the United Nations office in New York, for example. And the scandal that happens, happens at the General Assembly of the UN because the people there vote to go, I don't know, to war or make strange, strange decisions. These people who have the voting power have actually nothing to do with the administration of the United Nations in New York. And that's the same thing within FIFA. The people who vote are not in Zurich, are not there, cannot be appointed by the FIFA organization, but are elected in their home countries. And it is also the decision to, well, we will speak about it maybe later, how it came, the decision to Qatar. But what I always defended was the organization in Zurich, FIFA administration. Uh, and the decision that were criticized in the corruption incident, incident that happened, that happened on another level. Later on, unfortunately, they also affected the administration itself or people within the administration, but that I didn't know at that time. And that's why I felt so comfortable. And I could always say, look, it has nothing really to do with the administration of FIFA. Now, take us back. You're sitting dead there at Günther Jauch or at Stern TV, all the newspapers are calling you. And um, when we want to learn from leaders, uh, I, I'm actually curious. So you said you felt confident because you were knowledgeable. I mean, how did you manage your emotions, your nervousness? Um, how did you keep your inner balance? Uh, because... I mean, there is a huge tension, right? I mean, whatever you will say next day, you have to justify to, to the boss himself, to Mr. Blatter, right? And and and, uh, or if you, and and for sure to the to the, to the next media yeah. rounds. Yeah. Um, two things. Uh, when I look back at my life, when I was really nervous, it was ahead of the start of a rowing competition. I was so nervous that my whole body stopped functioning sometimes i thought and i never had this again never at any exam or at any moment in time in in my business work i was as nervous as i was when i was 15 16 17 ahead of a normal small rowing competition so maybe i was used a little bit to that the other thing uh, but that i didn't know at that time i didn't have to be afraid of getting questions from the director of communications or Mr. Blatter or Jerome, the general secretary, because honestly, nobody was interested in what I was doing. <laughs> yeah. When I came back after these three TV shows, my director um, passed me in the, in the walkway and I asked him, what do you think? And he said, I didn't have time to look at it, to watch it. And I never heard anything. So except from the director of legal, I didn't get any feedback. So, but this I didn't know at that time. No, I, uh, I didn't really think about this, to be honest. Hmm. Now, uh, maybe we can see the next uh, image. And that's, that's the moment that uh, Josef Blatter announces to the whole world, the FIFA World Cup 2022. 
And guess what? At that time, we thought that's long, long ahead uh, in many, many years. Uh, we feel very old. Then we will have a World Cup in the winter of 2022 in Qatar. Take us back when you saw that. Uh, I mean, were you anticipating that? Uh, did you have any clue that this was about to happen? And how did you feel? I mean, what was going on in you? I remembered as it is. If it was uh, last week, seriously, this moment I remember totally well because nobody within the administration expected Qatar to be the host. Nobody. And we couldn't believe our eyes when we saw it. And actually, Mr. Blatter only learned about it very recently before he went on stage. And okay. What most people don't know, it was clearly not in the interest of FIFA that the World Cup rose to Qatar. And mm. Mr. Blatter and the Secretary General, they exchanged some words. They were both furious. And one of them said, this is the end of FIFA. Um, so just imagine what the emotions were. Uh, and Mr. Blatter still had to defend the decision of the executive committee and smile and say the people will probably go to Qatar. But it, has no, it makes no sense from an economic point of view. And FIFA administration is there to raise the money and give it back to football. So um, with Qatar, with the limitations, with the non-existing infrastructure, with alcohol not being allowed or alcohol publicity and so on, it really made no sense, especially because the other um, candidate was the United States. And of course, the administration would have preferred the United States. But at that time, we didn't even know that the World Cup would take place in winter. You know, it was planned to take place in summer. Okay. Uh, but the 14 people who voted within the executive committee for Qatar probably either didn't consider that aspect of the heat in summer or ignored it. But the idea to postpone it into winter came way later. Yeah. Yeah. And I must say personally, you know, uh, over the last nine, ten years, uh, looking a lot into the business aspects aspect of, of of sports, into the doping, of into corruption, into all these aspects. Um, sometimes when I when when I look at sports at these mega events, it, it, it has become difficult for me to to enjoy it truly. Yeah. Um, and I think it will be difficult. I love every World Cup in so far since I'm like ten years old has been a highlight. I think it's going to be difficult for me to truly enjoy it. Um, not because of the region. Uh, the Middle East is a great region, but just it all unfolded and happened. How, how, how do you see it? I mean, it's a big discussion. You will remember this Sunday, the former Bayern boss uh, Uli Hoeneß called into the double pass. Yeah. TV studio and defended uh, formally the decision for Qatar. How do you see it yourself? Uh, somebody said that since 98, every World Cup has been bought. Votes um, have been bought or people have been bribed. And I probably, uh, this person is probably right, I would also assume. So, the, because the problem is the system itself. And that's why I have spent lots of time working on a, an alternative way to allocate the World Cup where corruption has almost no chance. And we developed such a, not me, but uh, it was a student with a university in Hamburg. He evaluated another system that would pretty much avoid corruption. And we presented it. Uh, at that time, 2015, I think it was, or, 40, or maybe even before that. Yeah, no, after the allocation of uh, Qatar, we presented it to everybody within FIFA, Mr. Blatter included. 
um, and they didn't want to speak about it because, um, yeah, it would mean that the people who have now the power to decide on the World Cup would say, okay, we don't want that power anymore. So they themselves have to give it to somebody else. And that, that system is a weighted draw. And so in the, in the end, there is a, an element of luck in there because it's a draw in the end. And then, of course, corruption is difficult. I could go into more detail on that, but um, at that time, yeah, we also thought something must have gone wrong. Why would the people vote for, for Qatar? On the other hand, uh, Qatar had a great presentation. Uh, I must admit, it was one of the best uh, bits I've ever seen. But then again, you need to understand as well that the, the bid itself plays almost no role in, in the World Cup allocation. The people have their own mind and their own opinion. And that's why you have to take such a big decision away from people, away from personal interests. Because uh, I, give, I always give this example, the representative of Argentina, uh, Julio Grandona at that time, when the, when the different host countries presented their bid and England was done with Beckham and Prince William and uh, it was a great uh, presentation, he passed my office and I asked him what he thought about it. And he said, look, Mr. Koch, as long as I live, I will make sure that nobody from Comibol, so from South America, will ever vote for England. And that's why I realized that whatever the bid is, and if you only have England against North Korea, Argentina would not vote for England because of the Falkland War. And if you have an African country um, bidding, they almost have 53 votes for sure, the other African countries. And if Israel is bidding, I'm pretty sure they won't get a single vote in the Arabic world. And there I realized that such a decision has nothing to do with completely independent people thinking about what is the best for world football. And that's actually not even possible because a representative from Germany, let's take that example, the, the president of the German Football Association, if he has the chance to, or the, the choice between two countries and one, let's say, is Mexico and you play in altitude and the other one is, uh, I don't know, a, a country where you don't play in altitude but which with a much worse bid. He would probably think, what is better for the German team? Ah, the German team may have a better chance to perform in that country, and then he would vote for that country. So that's why, forget this whole system with bidding and, and all this. If there are people taking decisions, they have another agenda. And that's um, why, and rightfully so. Yeah. Well, we all have our mental maps, we have our biases. And, you know, on the weekend, um, I must confess, uh, I was actually crying uh, for a moment. Uh, at least there were tears in my eyes when Roger Federer retired. And uh, the moderator dared to conclude that tennis will continue. Tennis is bigger than Roger Federer. And even though I'm quite a fan, I had to admit <laughs> he is probably right. And so we could probably say that uh, soccer and sports in general is much bigger than FIFA. And uh, the power of it, uh, uh, let's say, and the beauty of it uh, transcends personalities and organizations. Now, I read you recently a statement from you that you said that football doesn't use yet its positive potential. Uh, and it remains a reflection of our society with lots of good people, but also bad ones. 
Now, um, what for you are these great values uh, that the sport, the sport brings along, that the soccer brings along, and that we should focus on, actually? Look, um, FIFA has, a, at the time when I was working there, a very strong department at the time called CSR, so responsibility, and we did many, many projects under the name of Football for Hope. Now, they still do great projects. The name has changed. Everything has changed a little bit. But there I saw the power that you have with football. Wherever you come, you have the attention. If you come as FIFA, they know there's power behind. We can bring famous players and so on. And we did unbelievably good projects. And I was really impressed by that. And that is also a little bit due to the fact that Mr. Blatter had an interest in those projects. And he had an interest in Africa. He always spoke about Africa. Of course, the projects were not only in Africa, they were around the world. But I think it all depends. If you're, if you're looking at an organization where money is without limits in FIFA, you, you have money without limits, you could do so many good things. And there it depends really on the people who are leading the organization or who have the decision power. And, and I think such an organization could do more, but I also know about the limits because as FIFA is organized at the moment, it belongs to the 211 national associations. And I remember very well when FIFA launched a big program around the FIFA World Cup in South Africa, 2010, uh, Win in Africa with Africa, that was a program supporting the 53 countries in Africa with great infrastructure and so on and so on. Representatives from South America and Asia said, why are you doing this for Africa and not for us? We want the same immediately. So you, you always have a little bit this greed and, and why would that country get more than I do? And so we had to come up with a program as well for Asia and South America and so on and so on. And that's always when you work with people who have their own agenda. But I think if you had somebody on, at the top of FIFA who really wanted to do a lot of good things, I think you could do more. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the, we need a top-down leadership and then a bottom-up, you know, when I started, I told you with seven, when I started to play soccer, uh, <laughs> I went to the training and then we trained and trained and then the, the, the coach came to us and said, you know, on the weekend, there's going to be a tournament, you can come. So we went, there's a tournament, I was seven years old and this was really the most beautiful day in my life that I felt so alive being able to play. And at the end of this day, I will never, I went to the coach and said, will we ever do that again? Because I thought that's a once in a lifetime experience. Life cannot be so beautiful. And he said, yes, we'll do it every weekend. And I went home and like life was good. Um, now, I, I, I must say that, uh, so, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the kids of the sister of, of, of my girlfriend, they are now in the soccer club. They're eight years, six years old. And when I go and see them, I love it. I, 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 they are enjoying it. But also at this age, there's already, already such a seriousness, right? It seems to be uh, there's so many Ronaldos on that field. <laughs> there's these, there are these behaviors and the coach really wants these kids to win. Shishu Ravishankar says that sports has become sometimes like a war, an expression of war, and, and, and war is, 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 is played like, like you know, sports. 
and 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 maybe there is something to that. What can we do to protect that playfulness? Now we talked about top down. Maybe we need a leadership, but in these clubs. This evening, so many millions of people will be exposed to uh, coaches who maybe take things a little bit too far. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I can I can share this opinion totally. When I when my kids were playing football and I went to see two or three matches, I was disgusted by, but not by the behavior of the kids, actually more by the behavior of the parents. Mm-hmm. And when you're saying there are a lot many Ronaldos on the pitch, uh, I think it's more the parents who think that their kids are Ronaldos. If there were more Ronaldos on the pitch, it would be great because Ronaldo is a great person. He's unbelievably social. He is such a nice character. I can only speak very positively about him. Um, and then, of course, with his talent. But you're right. Um, I always think that sports and business or the rest of our life is not separate. You know? uh, the people who are playing football on the weekend are the manager or students or whatever during the week. And you have the similar behavior. I think a person brings something to the pitch or to the to the game. And that's his personal behavior and attitude. Is he very ambitious? Is he egoistic? Is he a team player or not? So sport can only to a small degree, I think, influence these people at a young age where they learn that maybe with a bit of team spirit, you can have more success or it's nicer than to be egoistic and always fight for yourself. But uh, at an adult uh, age, I'm not so sure because you, you see the top people in business who are very successful in business and who fight with the elbows, they are quite often also good sports people, successful in sports. They are not the ones that you like the most, but... Um, it goes with success. And as long as we admire uh, the, only the people who have success and not the people who did the best fair play uh, move or who are very social and who maybe are just coaches and look every weekend after the kid, um, the focus will always be on people who have success. And unfortunately, success we don't always get by just playing fair. True. And at the same time, uh, you know, uh, when now on the weekend I saw uh, Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal or for that matter, Djokovic, yeah. it seems to me that they somehow managed actually to remain playful at the top of the game. And is that maybe what different, differentiates them from the rest, right? Playing their potential, right? While yeah. everybody else, 99.9% cramp up because they want to win so badly. Would you agree? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I think if you want to um, get a spillover effect from sports to business or vice versa, it, it's the people at the top. If they are role models and idols and they behave in the way like um, Roger Federer, Nadal and Djokovic or so, then I think others want to copy that as well. But if you look up to people who who are just billionaires and who did whatever in order to get their money, then of course it doesn't help. But you're totally right. I think it, it needs more of those personalities that are authentic and and still remain modest. I, I actually also think that what I feel for me is modest. Yeah, and I think that's something um, in, in our work with TLEX for, for, for leaders, it, it's something I keep on wondering about how can you remain light, playful when it really matters? Because when 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 
when that sense of uh, playing not to lose, uh, that sense that there's everything at stake comes into our mind, we cramp up, uh, we lose our creativity, the joy, and by the very uh, intention of wanting to win, <laughs> we are already starting to lose because we are not even ourselves. We are just a copy, a version we think we would need to be. Now we are coming, we are coming to almost the, the close of this uh, podcast. And um, Alex, I always ask um, the speakers uh, about the biggest failures um, and also the greatest moments in their career uh, as a leader, as a sports person. So do you remember any lowest point in your career and what you took from it? Yeah, the lowest point I still remember. Um, it was in Brazil at the draw. And I volunteered to be the person in the ear of the general secretary who, who performed the draw. And my role was to give information about the teams the moment he pulls the name. Let's say he pulls Poland. And then I knew that Poland, I don't know, has scored that many goals or the, the most successful player was this, whatever the key information was. And that's the only thing I was prepared to. And then something happened. Jerome took a, a ball from the wrong pot. So something went wrong. And then he hesitated. And then he said, uh, oh, actually, I'm not so sure if this is correct. I need to ask what has happened or what's wrong. And around me in that studio, everybody said, oh, no, no, no. He needs to pull from, I don't know, pot two instead of three or whatsoever. But I, did, I didn't dare to tell him that because I wasn't sure myself. And this was not really my thing. And I saw him on stage waiting to get information from me. And I didn't say anything. Yeah. And then he was criticized like hell for having screwed up the draw. And I never, ever spoke to Jerome about this. Never. I think for the next two, three days, I avoided him. Mm. And we never, ever spoke about it until today. So maybe if he's listening to this uh, podcast, <laughs> Jerome, I apologize for that. <laughs> you apologize. I mean, I can literally see you. And I can see, I can, I can see you having that moment of hesitation. What, what is the learning from it? Is it about trusting your guts? Like, did, did you have the, would you, in retrospect, the right intuition and you didn't trust the guts? Or what is the learning you take from it? Probably I should have asked the person next to me who was directing the Soul TV studio um, for his opinion. I, I wouldn't have known what pops to take it. Uh, and then I probably could have said, look, people around me here, telling me, no, it's wrong, you should have taken from pot two. But then if I'm not 100% sure, I don't know if I would pass on such a message. But I sh actually, somebody told me afterwards, it was so easy. Yeah? So every normal person could have said, no, you have to do it from that pot. Just I didn't pay attention to it because I was just focusing on the information about it. So I don't know. Um, I never took that role again <laughs> to be some, in somebody's ear. <laughs> so was it maybe that that moment of can we call it absent-mindedness or not being fully there uh, or i've focused on something else i think yeah i mean you're right if 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 i could learn something from it then i should probably consider more than just my specific role and think yeah. about what is his role there and look at other eventualities and also make myself familiar with the entire procedure of the draw 
Okay. You're right. Yeah. There was way too much focused on one thing. Okay. Okay. Now, but uh, we want we want to end on the winning note. And nevertheless, I think you know when we, I don't know when we can reflect uh, and when we can share failures. I think that makes us win and it makes everybody else also feel lighter. Would you agree? If we want to use our creative potentials, um, we need to be ready to do mistakes. Um, otherwise, we tighten up by nature. Uh, that's why I always love to hear about these moments. Yeah. And it's, it's great, uh, Alex, how, how, you, how you're sharing about it. What would you say was your moment of greatest joy, maybe, or uh, win in your career? Now, when you're When you're introducing that like that, I give you a story of another failure. Okay. Which ended up nice, and that was probably my biggest relief I've ever had. Okay. okay. Um, other than that, I liked the TV shows and so, but I had lots of fun. But this one was at the uh, opening ceremony of the 2006 FIFA World Cup in Germany in Munich. Hmm. There was the trophy in the middle of this uh, of the uh, of the field. Yeah. And Pele and Claudia Schiffer came back. And my role then was, once the TV cameras were out, to go onto the pitch and take the trophy. And I went, knowing that still 60,000 people would look at me, or I thought they would look at me, probably they did something else. And I thought maybe there are still TV cameras. So I walked there, wanted to take the trophy, and didn't manage to take it away there. And I thought, what the hell is happening? It was glue. And so all of a sudden, I turned it and I said, oh, somebody screwed it on. So I turned it like this, took the trophy, put it back into the, case, into the suitcase and everything was off. And then half an hour later, when the opening match took place, somebody asked me about, was that the real trophy or the wrong one? And I said, no, no, it was the real trophy because there's one thing, how you can recognize the real trophy from the others. Because the real trophy has a golden-plated plate at the bottom with all the former winners engraved in it. And while I was saying it, I said, wait a second, <laughs> this plug at the bottom, I probably didn't take it. So what I did, I did screw the trophy off from the bottom plug with all the winners engraved, malachit and gold, and, and highly valuable, And this disappeared. So I did run from the Tribune into the garage somewhere where the entire material from the opening ceremony was in a big, um, big, uh, yeah. And I was looking there within the wood and all that stuff for that, um, for that piece of the trophy. And I found it. Believe it or not, I found it by coincidence. Nobody has taken it away. I put it in my jacket, brought it back to the suitcase. And that was the biggest relief I've ever had. I think I, I, that would have been the most embarrassing thing ever to tell that I have screwed off the trophy and forgot and lost the, the other part. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, um, that's definitely what we could call a successful crisis management. And probably we should give you an award for that. Well done, and thanks for, for sharing the, the story. Alex, uh, our time here in this uh, uh, podcast is, is over. I thank you so much for being uh, with us here, um, from sharing from your incredible experience uh, over these last couple of years. Looking forward to stay in touch. 
maintaining yeah. the friendship. And uh, thanks so much for all the viewers. Stay tuned to learn from the leaders uh, in our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, Chris.